Welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Paul Medeiros, who is the manager of environmental health at Wellington Dufferin Guelph Public Health, or at least one of them. Longtime stands of Guelph Politico know that twice a month we publish a dine safe guide with all the latest results from stores, restaurants, and other food-based businesses around Guelph. Well, there are about 1,700 types of these businesses all across the Wellington Dufferin Guelph region. And they all get regularly inspected, but sometimes accidents happen. Just like it did last month at a luncheon during International Women's Day at an Orangeville hotel and conference center. In the last couple of years, we've all seen firsthand how public health responds when there's a global health crisis. But what happens when the health crisis is about something we ate? That is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. On March 8th, Family Transition Place in Orangeville held their annual International Women's Day Celebration Luncheon for the first time in three years. The venue was the best Western Plus Orangeville Inn and Suites. The number of guests was in the neighborhood of 244, and at some point during the luncheon, people started getting sick. By 2.30 that afternoon, the reports started coming in. People were sick with a variety of symptoms, including vomiting, diarrhea, headaches, and nausea. And the likely source was something that they had eaten at that luncheon, food that was prepared by an outside caterer used by the hotel. Out of 193 people who attended the luncheon and responded to a public health questionnaire, 88 said that they had experienced symptoms. In the end, the culprit was identified as Bacillus cirrus, and it was on the quinoa and sweet potatoes in the chicken bowl. What a weird turn of events. It can't be every day that something like this happens, right? Well, would it surprise you to learn that every year about one in eight people in Canada get sick from food-related illnesses? Or how about the fact that there were 57 suspected foodborne illness complaints investigated by public health in our region just last year? It's easy to forget that there's a lot of oversight when it comes to the safety of our food, and you have to admit that there are times when maybe we take those systems for granted. But when things do go wrong, that's where Paul Medeiros and his colleagues at Public Health take charge to ensure that people handling our food are at the top of their game. And this week, he's going to help tell us how they do it. So Medeiros will take us through the motions on this episode of the Guelph Politicast by walking us step-by-step through the investigative process from the reporting to the investigation to the testing and how they develop the conclusions. We will talk about the ways that public health prepares for these crises, whether we should be alarmed by that one-in-eight figure, and why the circumstances around the Orangeville luncheon made the investigative process a little smoother. We will also talk about whether there's a more general awareness about public health in these now post-pandemic times and how new food-based businesses are making the job of food inspectors harder. And finally, we will talk about the economic stresses on food-based businesses, what happens now for the caterer in question, and how this situation might have been different if it had happened in a downtown Guelph bar during a busy weekend night in the fall. So I caught up with Paul Medeiros last week via Zoom. Okay, Paul Medeiros, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Pleasure to Uh, be here. Well, we're glad to have you. Maybe to start with, um, just so people kind of understand your position, um, how does one rise to the position of manager of environmental health? You know, uh, and and what does that position entail? (laughs) 
<laughs> sure. Well, what a great question. Um, I'm one of a uh, uh, few of us are managers in different in different areas as well, and we divide the program uh, or our responsibilities up into various programs. So food safety falls under me, uh, as does rabies and some some others. Um, in terms of you know <laughs> rising to the position, oh my goodness, what a what a question. I guess I drew the short straw. Um, <laughs> and, and on a personal note. I will say I joined the health unit uh, April 25th of last year, and I came from the private sector. Mm -hmm. I am a certified health inspector, but I was out working with industry for a couple of decades, and I really wanted to go back into public health to fulfill a personal mission, and that's why I'm here. Perfect. Um, well, I guess you've been waiting all year for an opportunity like this, but uh, obviously the reason we're here is to talk about what happened at this luncheon in Orangeville back on International Women's Day. So to begin with, um, when an emergency situation, like it would be fair to call this an emergency situation, yes? Yeah. Yeah. So when an emergency situation comes like comes up like this, like what happens, I guess, on the end of the person where the, uh, the place where the food is being served, right? Like I, I take it they probably have their own sort of protocols about what happens. And I guess... I'm, I'm trying to figure out how, at, at what point, who gets called and and how does the person at the venue know to call public health? Yeah, great. Uh, great questions. There are a few different levels here. One is in any kind of emergency, there's always a little bit of fog, mm. right? Because we don't really know the extent of the emergency. All we know is we start to get some of these dots, right? Mm -hmm. And the key is to, you know, you collect the dots and you got to start to connect the dots. And so what happened with us, we received that initial call from the caterer here to one of our health inspectors. And at the time it was one person is sick, there might be more. Okay. At the same time, the event organizer had called the Orangeville office directly. So at the time, the Orangeville uh, health inspector didn't know that our Guelph health inspector um, was, was having this conversation with the caterer. But the one thing I'll say about our team is because of our training and experience, anytime a health inspector gets a call that says somebody got, may have got sick, mm -hmm. uh, we start to communicate with each other and we start to use our systems to, con to connect the dots. So that's what happened that afternoon of March 8th. Of course, it all started happening around 4.30 <laughs> toward the end of the day, which, which meant that we had to bring people in. And it was a very long evening for us, of course, because um, we do have that outbreak response machinery that that kicks in so so that's on our end at the operator end so what happens is uh, fortunately we have relationships with food premises because we inspect them on a regular basis so they know to call uh, and they might try to call their their area inspector directly or uh, in the case of this particular caterer he called our uh, public health inspector intake line and spoke with the inspector who was on on intake um there's uh we also have uh on our website other means to communicate with the health unit as well especially if you're a consumer so maybe you're not the operator you're just somebody who ate and got sick so they can call right into the health unit uh, and then they would eventually be or quickly be redirected to the uh, to the health inspector there's something kind of particular i guess i was thinking about which is number one is there's kind of like I was going to say there's no emergency number if you get sick, but there kind of is. Not, you know, <laughs> 911 does medical emergencies too. 
But yeah. also something like this, which is has the typical same symptoms as something like the flu, nausea, um, mm-hmm. gastrointestinal distress, um, vomiting. Yeah. A lot of people who get sick from, from foodborne illnesses may not, that may not be where their brain goes first, right? For sure. For sure. Every year in Canada, one in eight, one in eight people get foodborne illness of some form or another. The vast majority goes underreported, either because they don't think it was the food or they think it was the food, but they're like, ah, no big deal. Uh, and they don't bother, you know, calling it in. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but you are, you're, you're right. I mean, uh, a lot of times it does go unreported in this particular case. Um, because it was at one event and a lot of the people who were there knew each other, they started calling each other up. Hey, I'm feeling this. Are you feeling that? Um, and so that's, that's part of the reason why we're able to, you know, eventually identify that 88 people out of the 240 or, or so attendees got, got sick. The other thing that was unique about this was the, the uh, causative agent, the pathogen that made mm-hmm. people sick uh, bacillus cereus, that version of bacillus cereus makes you sick quickly. So in fact, the meal was served shortly after 12, people ate, the speakers starting to speak. While the speakers were speaking, people started to feel ill. So mm. people were getting sick there at the event. And that triggered people to keep an eye out when they got home. People, um, again, anecdotally, we hear people driving home, pulling the car over to vomit. Mm. Uh, people in the parking lot vomiting. I mean, something uh, unlike where you may have eaten in a restaurant, you have your meal, you go home, and the next day you get sick. It's harder to connect those dots. Here we had people who attended that event kind of connecting the dots for us right. that something big was going on. Um, there are a couple of divergence I want to go on. First is um, the people sort of like communicating with each other and, and seeing if they're all right. Is this like maybe a a byproduct of the pandemic where we're kind of hyper aware of when people are sick around us now, or is this a typical reaction? Again, anecdotally, I would say that, yeah, people are much more aware. I mean, all you have to do walk into a crowded uh, supermarket and sneeze and people <laughs> will look at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there is that, that kind of awareness. Um, I, I think here uh, it was an international women's day event held by Family Transition Place as, you know, as a, as a fundraiser luncheon. So I think even the people who were there, you know, my sense is they had that sense of community anyway to begin with. Uh, and so that could create an environment where they would be more willing to share uh, and to communicate with each other. Uh, also, from talking to the event organizer, there were cases where one person was buying a ticket for multiple people. Right. So, again, I think that speaks to the sense of community and how well people were connected there at that particular event, which you wouldn't necessarily get at a restaurant. Right. And the other thing is one in eight. And you mentioned this at the public health meeting, too. One in eight gets sick from contaminated food. That seems high to me. Is that high? It well, it, it yeah, I'd, I'd say it, it's too high. From okay. a societal perspective, we don't want that many people getting sick, which is why we work very, very diligently to prevent that from happening. 
right? So we've got systems in place to, and not just at the local public health level, but at the provincial level and the federal level. I mean, we all work very hard to keep that number that number low. Uh, but unfortunately, things go wrong. Um, and to the tune of one in eight, uh, according to Health Canada and other and other sources as well. And so when things do go wrong, that's why at various levels of government, you've got the machinery that kicks in. Gotcha. Well, let's get back to Orangeville then. Um, they have the Guelph office on the phone. They have the Orangeville office on the phone. I, I guess what's the first step? Like once people are in their cars and, you know, going to the venue, like what's the first step? Is it like talking to the people or is it like getting the the food samples and, and making sure you have all that stuff gathered up? Yeah, yeah, you, you, you nailed it, Adam. It's, uh, it's the food um, because... Again, it was during the those early minutes and early hours, we didn't know what kind of food uh, was the culprit. Uh, we had to collect the information. We knew that there was a, you know, that outside caterer who had served the meal, but we also knew that there were two other vendors there as well who were giving out samples of food. So at the time, we didn't know what the culprit was. As, as we started realizing more and more people were getting sick. And I think toward the end of that evening, um, we started to collect some data. So probably by 11 o'clock, we recognized maybe 20 or 26 people were sick, something like that. So we knew that it was, it was at this point, we knew it was an outbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, but but again, we didn't know what the causative agent was. We didn't know what the food was. So we did know that the very next morning, we had to go to these three places to make sure that whatever food they had wasn't being served until we could figure out if it was safe or not. Mm-hmm. Now, um, in conversation with the caterer that first evening, uh, we told the caterer verbally, okay, whatever you have, is it safe? Is it secure? He described how it was. We said, fine, keep it there. We'll be in tomorrow to take a look. Uh, and that's what we did. We went in the next morning. First thing, um, we took a look, verified it was secure from further distribution, and we took samples. 24 food samples and one water sample because again we didn't know what food item was the culprit so we sampled everything at the same time we had those two other vendors um one was a soup vendor and then we had another vendor that had a uh, uh, like a snack product that was being uh, you know sampled uh we visited them as well just to make sure uh and again that initial visit because again at that point we don't know what we're looking for so we right. want to make sure the food is stopped we also want to make sure that if it's if food is continuing to be served in a premise that might be unsafe, like maybe it was something in the environment that contributed to the food causing the outbreak, we look for that as well. So we look to see what stands out. Um, what I would say is environmentally, nothing stood out. Even from a food perspective, nothing stood out because that food was all in a refrigerator that was nice and cold. Mm. So nothing really standing out as being as being an issue. But uh, to your point, the first step uh, was to make sure that we kind of prevented other people from getting sick as much as we could. How often in your experience is like, you know, you're able to identify the cause like kind of like right off the bat, like right away, because just from, from the way you described the initial investigation is nothing stands out. And is that an unusual situation to find yourself in where you walk into a place and nothing stands out right away? So, uh, yeah, 
it is much more common not to find the cause than it right. is to find the cause. Okay. We last year investigated 57 suspect foodborne illness complaints. And it is really difficult to, you know, to find that smoking gun, so to speak, right? And so, uh, especially if it's a one-off, because it could be that the person thinks they got sick, mm. that it was food-related, but it mm. wasn't. It could also be, and this often happens, where we think it was the very last meal we ate that made us sick. Mm-hmm. In the case of this outbreak, it was. <laughs> In the case of most outbreaks or most illnesses, it's not. It could be something from two days ago. Uh, however, you know, in the mind of the person who was sick and who may have spent the last, you know, few hours, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, you know, in their mind, it was the flavor of the food they were vomiting. Right. <laughs> that, was, that was what made me sick. Uh, and inevitably, you know, we'll go there uh, to investigate. But we also try to get the food history of people going back three days. We also try to find out. Do you have any pet, um, any pets? Where are you traveling? Where's where's your source of water? Because all these other things could make them sick. Uh, and as I said before, out of these fifty-seven cases last year, um, now we, you know, to find that that true cause is is very difficult. But in, this is a situation where it's kind of like a bit easier because so many people are sick. Um, there aren't as many of those sort of like individual things you have to look at, like the, the person's own chemistry and what they're allergic to and where, where else they've eaten. It's because there were, as you said, at this point, you had identified 26 people. Yeah. yeah Adam, we were, we were very fortunate that, that a few things, a few things happened. First of all, nobody's fortunate that people got sick. Right. Um, but we were fortunate that the event organizer was super keen, super organized. She wanted to work with us. Um, and in fact, we, we broke with precedence when we did our, our investigation, because as I said before, just a few minutes ago, we tried to get the, the, the food histories of all the people, what they ate. Mm-hmm. The traditional way of doing it is that a health inspector or a team of inspectors would call each person individually and do this, you know, the, the interview over the phone. We broke with precedence this time because we sent a link because the survey was online. And not only did we do an online survey, we also, instead of us administering it directly to the, you know, to all the 240 attendees, we worked through the event organizer. And again, we felt we were able to do that because the organizer was keen, eager to help, very organized. Uh, and, and they had the contact information and they had all the, you know, the email addresses and the, and, and the cell numbers. It was just so much more efficient to do it that way. Right. Um, so we were able to be very innovative and efficient Again, fortunate because the event organizer was super organized. Um, and again, the fact that all the people ate at one meal uh, at one event, the fact that this particular pathogen was one that had a very quick onset time. So people, you know, with people getting sick at the event or on their way home, it's easier for them to put pieces together as well. If it had been something like salmonellosis or, you know, Campylobacter, that might make might make you sick the next day or maybe two days later. People might not have connected the dots as easily. Right, right. The next point I want to tackle here is about the the types of analysis that's done. Like what kind of tests? And I want to invite you to keep in mind that you may or may not be speaking to someone who barely got out of high school science alive. So. <laughs> 
keep it as uh, keep it as in in as much many layman terms as possible. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, our investigation is going to focus on four areas, generally speaking. Okay. One is food samples. Okay, and we work with Public Health Ontario labs. And, and I'll tell you, the, the Public Health Ontario lab personnel were outstanding uh, in their support that they gave us with with this um, with this outbreak. So the food gets gets tested. Now, there, there's no magic wand or no like Star Trek device tricorder that you could hover over food and it'll tell you what's wrong with it. So you have to have a sense of what it is you're testing for as right. well. So, so you know, working with them, we kind of had some ideas what it could be, and so they they were testing testing accordingly. Uh, so that's in the food. The other one is uh, uh, they're called clinical samples, and they could be well, it could be blood, it could be vomit, it could be feces. In this case, these were stool samples that we were um, we had submitted. And again, what are you testing for? Again, we have to have a bit of an idea, so it's a targeted approach. But again, it's the lab that is, I mean, they're the ones that collect those samples, the vials of stool, and, and they plate them and they test them and they tell us what, what they find in it. So those are those are two. Um, the other one is gonna be uh, epidemiology. So mm. that is, you know, we and we've got a great epidemiologist on staff here. And, you know, she is like the data illness scientist. Um, and when you, uh, when you collect all the information, the data, who got sick, when did they get sick or start to feel the symptoms, what was it that they ate, you you enter all that information into this, you know, into this epidemiological analysis, right? That there's two basic tools we use. One's called an epi curve, another one is called a food attack rate table. The the attack rate table is you know, a pivotal piece because it it looks at you know all the foods that were consumed. Mm -hmm. And what was the rate of illness for each mm -hmm. of the food that was confirmed? So for each food, what percentage of people got sick who ate that food? And for the people who didn't eat that food, what percentage of people still got sick or didn't get sick? Right. So you do this statistical analysis and it points to the culprit. Right. And, and in this case, the epi pointed us to the chicken bowl. Um, as being the one that was most likely. So we've got the epi analysis, we've got the clinical samples, we've got the food samples that then give us a hypothesis of what it could be. But then we then have to go back on site. And the first time we went there, as I said before, it was just to make sure that, you know, if anything really stands out that we, we stop it, we prevent it. But we really weren't sure what we were looking for. The second time we are, and we went back March 16th, because at that time, the, the lab result came back. So the stool results came back as all negative, nothing was detected. But the food samples came back with quinoa uh, and sweet potato testing positive for Bacillus cereus. Mm -hmm. And again, armed with that information, we were able to go back and do a very targeted evaluation at the caterers. So we actually uh, spent a couple of hours there. We had the caterer walk us through the quinoa and the sweet potato related steps, step by step. And we took notes. Three of us went there, took a lot of notes. <laughs> um, and when and when the caterer would say, oh, and I would cook it, we'd, we'd say, okay, show us where you cooked it. What equipment did you use? How long did it take? Show us your recipes. Show us this. Show us that. And then after you cooked it, you cooled it. Well, where did you cool it? 
Show us the equipment. Show us the bins. Show us this. Show us that. And after spending the time there, um, it gave us a really good sense because with Bacillus cereus, we know. And Bacillus cereus has been associated with other mass catering-related outbreaks. Mm-hmm. So we know that if you give food that's contaminated enough time to grow at the right temperature, then Bacillus cereus will flourish, it'll grow, it'll produce toxins. And so after you know our, our very detailed assessment there, we just started counting up the numbers of how much time the food spend in each step along the way. And we realized, okay, it adds up, could have happened. For people who don't know, what's Bacillus cereus? So Bacillus cereus is, uh, it's a bacteria and it's a bacteria that causes foodborne illness. Kind of, you may have heard of, you know, Salmonella or Campylobacter or Hep A or the neuroviruses. Uh, so these are things, the general term is pathogen. But something that's going to make mm-hmm. you sick, it's a pathogen. Mm-hmm. Bacillus cereus is an interesting one. <laughs> it's common in the environment. So you're going to find it in soil. And that's why it can, can get on grain products, starchy foods, on vegetables, one reason why we want to wash our vegetables and wash things before we start to cut them or slice them or, or prepare them. The uh, the Bacillus cereus, though, the bacteria lives in the environment in the form of a spore. It's not an active um, mm-hmm. vegetative cell because mm-hmm. some bacteria are spore formers. Okay, when they're um, you know presented with a harsh environment, well, some bacteria die. Others say no, <laughs> no I must live. So they create this. You know, and, you know, well, you can see me because you can see the video, right? Right. They, they form this shell around themselves. Right. Uh, they become a spore. And so the food has spores. If you ingest a spore, and again, I'm oversimplifying it, but in most cases, you're not going to get sick. But what happens with Bacillus cereus, the food comes in from wherever, and it's got a spore in it. And now you're going to add water to this food and you're going to cook it. Well, and again, whether it's rice, or whether it's quinoa or anything, what happens in the cooking process, first of all, you've added the water, so mm-hmm. it's no longer a dry environment, and the, and the bacillus spores go, okay, great, it's no longer dry, it's kind of wet, it's moist, I like this, I can start to germinate, okay? And But then you cook it, and so it's really hot, and then the spores go, oh, this the, the, the bacillus cereus go, oh, that's no good, it's too hot, I don't like it, they become a spore again. It's like back and forth. But if you let that cook, moist food then sit out for too long in what we call the danger zone it's a temperature range between four and 60 that bacteria love they love it okay so you cook it really hot bacteria don't like it they stay as a spore but as the temperature starts to drop through the danger zone right because you get either you keep food hot and you serve it hot Mm. Or you're going to store it to reheat it uh, the next day or to maybe to serve it cold, right? Mm. Like in the case, like in this case, the, the food has to get from really hot down to really cold, has to travel through the danger zone. Mm-hmm. If it takes too long to travel through the danger zone, you've given the food enough time, right? The bacteria enough time to germinate and to start to grow and grow and grow. That's why we hear this term often in the food industry. It's quick cooling. You gotta quick cool your food. Quick mm-hmm. cool, right? Use an ice bath, use shallow pans, use in the case of mass catering, where you're doing lots of food, use blast chillers, 
right? <laughs> Use like tools and, and devices to cool it quickly. Because um, if you don't, you're giving the bacteria enough time, like the spores, to, to germinate, to produce uh, the toxins. And then recognizing it's a cumulative effect. In other words, if it's in the danger zone now for eight hours, and then you take it out the next day and you temperature abuse it again for another two hours, now you've got 10 hours worth of temperature abuse. And that's plenty of time, uh, in most cases, to cause an outbreak or an illness. This sounds like a perfect storm, kind of. It's It was there on the a couple of the ingredients. Um, it gets hot in, in the cooking process and because it was kind of left to sort of be in it, it in the danger zone to fall slowly through the danger zone as it cools yeah. theoretically if this stuff had been served hot or if it had been put in the the cold blaster which sounds like sounds like something mr freeze would have but yeah. uh you know theoretically if it had been served hot or if it had been like cooled super quickly people might not have gotten sick is that kind of well, uh, yes, because okay. if, you, if you, I mean, if we think about it, we're not hearing every day of large, large mass catering events, weddings right. or whatever, resulting in outbreaks. So mass catering by far. And again, that's producing food for large quantities of people. Uh, and it could be in a, like hospitals do mass catering, right? Sure. Or mass food production. Uh, Child care centers can, schools, cafeterias, you name it. It's all cooking for large groups of people. Um uh, because we don't hear these happening all the time, most of the time, the risks are managed properly through, like you said, quick cooling or keeping it hot and serving it hot, that sort of thing. I wonder if we skipped over a step because you talked about, you have to know what you're looking for in the testing. Um, so how did, how did we get to, we need to find out what this is and all of these samples we have to be saying like, we're going to find this like i guess how do we know we were looking for this particular bacteria oh great 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 point so um so the test did come back positive for bacillus cereus mm -hmm. uh, we also began to suspect as we were starting to collect anecdotal information mm -hmm. um that people were getting sick this quickly uh, again, without us knowing, was it the chicken? Was it the quinoa? Was it the sweet? I mean, it could have been the lentils. Like we didn't know, uh, but we started to suspect it could be something like Bacillus cereus, or okay. it could be something uh, like Staphylococcus aureus. We had a sense of what it could be, right. and so the lab was able to target its its lab testing for a specific range of pathogens. Okay, gotcha. So it's it's the combination of things. It's the people filling out the survey and then you, you filter that data and you're able to say, well, now we have to look at this, this, and this. And because of the symptoms, we know what it might be. It might be this range of, of causes. And so we can yeah. test for a range of causes, even though we can't test for every cause. But yeah, until that Star Trek tricorder can be invented, you're <laughs> right. right. You got to be a little more targeted uh, for the lab. All right, perfect. Um, so now that we know what it is, um, what's the next step in terms of, I guess by this point, like it had passed through everybody's systems and it's, it's yeah. a week and a half later, so nobody's sick anymore. So I guess all that's left at this point is prevention. How do we stop this from happening again? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and as it relates to this particular caterer, um, we, we we met with that caterer, we talked about, you know, 
what happened and the cause and what we believe led led to it. So I I'm gonna I'm gonna suspect that uh, you know this caterer is gonna have some changes in in their practices. So so that's good. Uh, and of course we still inspect right we inspect places one two or three times a year depending on the risk level so we will be back there and we will be verifying that this particular caterer uh is doing things properly and of course i mean this particular caterer they called us first right they they're the ones to call us and are extremely interested in in learning and in doing the right thing so that uh, that's that's a given fortunately uh but there are other caterers out there who may not know uh we have uh, something like 33 premises in our health unit that categorize themselves as caterers, mm-hmm. but they're not the only ones. M- many types of businesses cater as well. Right. They do right? this, this sort of thing. Um, and the other thing that frankly concerns me is that we could have some home-based businesses who might be catering um, because the person who operates that home-based catering business thinks they can. Um, Anybody who operates a business needs to notify public health that a food business needs to notify us. And many home-based businesses do. Uh, But if they don't notify us, we don't know they exist. So how can we even train them, inspect them, help them or support them? So that might be a bit of an Achilles heel out there in this whole mass catering uh, world. But, But again, so for those businesses then who have notified us and who we work with, uh, we've already sent communication out, uh, like a lessons learned communication, okay. um, number one. Uh, number two, we're planning some more communication and some more things we can do, uh, including how we do things internally, how we inspect, for example. So as inspectors, can we be doing things differently to look for mass catering risks, maybe a little more closely? So we're we're looking at ourselves as much as we're looking outward to you know, to prevent these from happening. Um, but again, on, on the outward side of things, we are recognizing that mass catering, higher set of risks, requires specific, better tools, better knowledge, and uh, we're going to be working with our operators to help them uh, achieve that. It strikes me that there's been a lot of changes to the way we handle food and the way the business of food handling has changed. And, you know, it's not just that, you know, home-based businesses, but I'm I'm, I'm thinking about things like, home delivered meal kits um yeah. <laughs> you know the, the increasing use of community kitchens yeah. um as a way to help combat like food insecurity um is the job getting harder the job is getting more complex okay it's <laughs> <laughs> diplomatic but okay <laughs> it's it's I mean, it's getting harder to do. It's 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 getting harder to do everything when it's becoming so complex, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to spend the time to understand these new and emerging risks wh- while we continue to do the day job, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so in that sense, it's it's harder. It's definitely more complicated for sure. Um, I would say I would much rather have uh, somebody who wants to prepare food. To use a commercial rental kitchen or a commercial or a community kitchen versus trying to do it in their in their home. Right. I would definitely rather have somebody call us with questions versus trying to you know do things under the radar. Right. Um, I would also say that you know businesses who try to because you can sell things through the internet, for example. Okay. So if you have your 
great-grandmother's recipe for this sauce, this garlic oil, or this spice that your grandfather used to make, and you're going to start to jar it or bottle it in your home and sell it on the internet, which many people do, uh, don't think that just because you can cook something in your kitchen for your family and do it safely, that you can mass produce it to sell it to restaurants or to sell it out in the public. It's a totally different thing altogether. Right. And again, there's, you now I mentioned our Achilles heel before, I think the soft underbelly of our food safety program is people who think, or even, even businesses who think they can do food manufacturing, that it's not that hard. Right. It is hard. So work with us so that we can help you do it safely. It's a matter of scale because you can make a meal, but uh, the question, you can make a meal and not get your, you or your partner or your family sick. But when you're making a meal for 500, that's, it's a completely different situation. If you're making a meal for 500 or if you're jarring a sauce <laughs> for 5,000, Totally different because if something goes wrong with your family, then your family gets sick. If something goes wrong with 5,000 people, then that's a totally different scale. That's a different scale. Um, this was kind of addressed in the report at the Board of Health meeting, too. It, it seems like the caterer is suffering from a, a common malady in a lot of service-based businesses, which is like people power. They, they didn't seem to have the people that they're doing a lot with well, yeah. with fewer people around. And I've been noticing this on the regular inspection updates on the Check Before You Choose site that it seems like, and again, this is maybe anecdotal, I haven't crunched the numbers, but it just seems like there's kind of more checks against, you know, some of these restaurants and, and other food-based businesses. Is this something that I guess maybe is going under the radar, although it's technically not under the radar if we're still inspecting for it, but, you know, these businesses just don't have the people to get those A plus green light report cards from the inspector. Yeah, it's it's a tough business. The food service business is a tough business. As I as I mentioned before, uh, you know, before a year ago, I was actually in the consulting business, uh, consulting, uh, trading, auditing food service companies. There's there's this um, you know common saying called the magic nickel, mm. which at the end of the year, you if you operate a restaurant, you're likely to make five percent profit. Mm -hmm. um, so those that 5% needs to be used to freshen up your restaurant. Because if you don't do a major rental every five years, people get bored and people don't go back, right? It needs to be used for so many things, not to mention food costs are going up as well. Right. So, ah, boy, it's, it, it is a tough business and we see our operators and we see some of them they get sick they have repetitive motion injuries they've got <laughs> it's such it's, it's it's a tough business so so you are correct there is high employee turnover uh cost pressures um other pressures also when you look at the employees too themselves i mean they don't get necessarily get paid to stay home sick right so Again, you know, from a public health perspective, I, I see another risk factors. We don't we also don't want employees going into work when they have diarrhea. Right. Because um, then they're going to make lots of people, lots of people sick. So you as a business owner, you've got turnover, you've got costs, you've got people calling in who are sick and you're telling them. OK, stay home. <laughs> but you're just waiting <laughs> in the back of your mind, you're going, you have to stay home. But OK, stay home. Uh so it's it is it is tough, um, and 
mean, I actually asked this question of a restaurant operator last week because in talking to her, I did notice that she had her, um, the employees who were working in the kitchen had been there for several years. So mm -hmm. I asked her, okay, what's your secret? <laughs> Why mm -hmm. do you get the employees to stay? Because in this particular operation, man, they were doing a lot of good things, right? And they had good systems in place and they had really good cooling happening and they had temperature logs. And I was just so thrilled that I was, you know, um, and part of the reason why they were doing so well was because they had experienced staff who were good staff, well-trained, and they stayed. And I said, why do they stay? Mm -hmm. And she said a couple things. One is she um, she augments their meals. Mm -hmm. So they only have to pay uh, basically a few bucks for their meal and they get a nice meal for, for a few bucks. Um, she does a lot of, she's a very engaged owner. So she is there all the time supporting them. She jumps on the line. She helps out. Uh, she does that as well. Uh, basically, so she she works very hard to keep her her team engaged. So mm -hmm. uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is turnover is tough, but there are probably things that restaurant operators can do to make their place very enticing for their employees to stay. And right. if they can, not only does it make the food safety better, but it's going to make so many things better. Right. Um, a couple other things for just to answer my curiosity it was mentioned at the Board of Health meeting of the 1700 food based businesses in the region, 252 are high risk. What are the high risk ones? Like what kind of businesses specifically? So high risk in this sense doesn't mean dangerous. Right. Uh, but in this particular case, it means, uh, uh, types of food premises who make complex types of meals okay. or they serve high-risk populations like a hospital kitchen would be considered right. risk or a nursing home, long-term care, that, that sort of thing. Uh, or in some cases, it could be maybe a moderate risk place that has demonstrated that um, they have food safety challenges. So we bump them up based on their behavior and performance to high risk. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I, but I would say the, the majority of those aren't dangerous. They just, uh, they're just higher risk because of the nature of what they do. Okay, gotcha. Um, and for my last question, and I kind of want to invert, like, I, I kind of everything we've learned today. <laughs> um, what happens if something like this happens, or what happened in Orangeville? Like, you get start getting reports, and it's instead of 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it's 2 a.m., it's downtown Guelph. It's like homecoming weekend or, you know, one of those busy weekends where, you know, 10,000 kids are downtown going from pub to pub to pub. And you get these reports like 80 people, maybe not even that many, 20 people sick. You know, how, how does this process change given those parameters? Well, we have 24-7 uh, availability and accessibility. So what would happen is at three o'clock in the morning, the manager who was on call uh, would get a phone call from our on-call agency saying, we've got 20 people vomiting at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, and that manager would respond. What that manager does, it's gonna, it depends on the situation, right. really. Uh, I mean, conceivably, there could be a time where the manager is gonna get up, get dressed <laughs> and, and head on down. <laughs> Uh, or it might be able to wait till the next day, but we would be, if we got a call at three in the morning, we're going to be made aware of it. Um, I'd also say that my daughter is university age. 
So if something was happening downtown, she might actually, sh- you know, <laughs> get into the bedroom and she'd be awake. <laughs> Dad! <laughs> 911 situation downtown. <laughs> I hope she doesn't. <laughs> Speaking strictly from the point of view that you don't want something like this to happen in the, the middle of the night uh, here in town. But uh, Paul Medeiros, uh, maybe one of the most important people in Guelph. Nobody knows. Uh, we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for coming on and explaining things to us. Thanks, Adam. It was a pleasure. Anytime. And once again, that was Paul Medeiros. And you can check out his report in the May Board of Health meeting package at the Public Health website. Or you can see the Guelph Politico coverage of that meeting for all the relevant links. Manger, Guelph Politico's Dine Safe Guide still gets published at the 1st and 16th of every month, but if you just can't wait, you can see all the latest inspection results at checkbeforeyouchoose.ca. That's checkbeforeyouchoose, all one word, and with two O's in choose, .ca. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Politico Guelph on Facebook and at Guelph Politico on Twitter. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram as well, or you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.